Welcome back to Mafia. And in this Audio Boom original podcast series, we explore America's criminal underworld to reveal the lives and careers of its greatest gangsters. Our sponsors for this episode are Hymns, ZipRecruiter, and Dollar Shave Club. This series has been extensively researched and produced in consultation with experts, authors, and those who were actually there. Previously on Mafia. Schultz is just too much of a hothead and has too much pride in a way to sort of give in to any of Vincent Cole's demands. And he just doesn't have that sort of compromising gene that people like Arnold Rothstein, Lucky Luciano has. 1931 New York. The city is in the midst of one of the bloodiest gang wars in its history. A war between Dutch Schultz, the so-called beer baron of the Bronx, and his most violent associate, Vincent Mad Dog Cole. It was exactly the kind of open warfare that Lucky Luciano had been trying to end when he organized the mob in 1929. Luciano realized if you could do it non-violently and get away with it, it was a lot better than doing it violently. Then in the long run, too much violence brought too much attention, too much attention from law enforcement, and that could be your undoing. Public violence was something that gangsters at this time were starting to abhor, that they were perfectly happy with little private acts of violence or, you know, something happening in a back alley, but shooting it out on the street in broad daylight was bad for business, it got a lot of bad publicity, and police, even if they were in the pay of the local gangsters, kind of felt obliged to do something about it, and politicians were under a lot of pressure to do something about it. So other gangsters were quite appalled by this war between Dutch Schultz and Vincent Cole, um, especially that it seemed kind of pointless in a way because Schultz probably could have come up with a much more peaceful solution uh, other than sort of engaging in fights with machine guns on the street. This is Mafia. As long as only rival gang members were being hurt, the war was tolerated. But the situation changed quickly when the violence spread. Author Nate Hendley has researched the life and times of Dutch Schultz in depth. It's war, it's very violent, even by New York gangster standards. It's just, you know, hell on the streets. And both sides are not willing to negotiate. They're just shooting at each other. And that led into the horrific incident in which Vincent Cole and his gangsters shot up a bunch of children uh, by trying to hit one of Dutch Schultz's associates on the street. Four children were hit. Five-year-old Michael Vengali later died in the hospital. The newspapers are starting to pay a lot of attention to Dutch Schultz, that all of a sudden, you know, he's rising from this sort of obscure thug in the Bronx, he's sort of getting a reputation in the media, and he's starting to attract the eye of the police, he's starting to attract the eye of politicians. He's not quite on the radar as Lucky Luciano is, he's not quite on the radar as Al Capone is in Chicago, but this is really starting to raise his profile in a very dangerous way. And you've got people who are uh, coming into power like uh, Mayor LaGuardia, who would be come mayor a couple years after the war, and he really wants to clean up the city and he really targets people like Dutch Schultz. So he's gaining a reputation, uh, and in a lot of ways it's a very negative reputation because he's getting attention from uh, police, from politicians, from the press, and a good gangster doesn't want that. You want to be sort of in the background, managing things, 
you don't want to get your name in the paper and you don't want prosecutors and police sort of looking over your shoulder. The war finally came to a bloody end. Schultz's men tracked Cole down and trapped him in a phone booth where they opened fire. But it was a short-lived victory. Schultz and the mob were now the ones in the firing line. Having drawn the attention of the new and ambitious chief assistant attorney, Thomas Dewey. Uh, he has a mustache, you know, he's very clean cut looking, and he carries himself with certain dignity. Thomas Dewey is almost the exact opposite of Dutch Schultz. Other than the fact that they were born in the same year, they have almost nothing in common. That Schultz is about, you know, as bad as you can get, and Thomas Dewey is about as good as you can get. He's almost a stereotypical straight arrow. You know, great student at school, you know, great marks, becomes a, a prosecutor. You know, he's very straight arrow, uh, married, children, definitely sort of got uh, passion for the law, passion against crime, and he's very serious and he's very incorruptible. That's one of the distinguishing factors that he can't be bribed he has a visceral dislike of organized crime. Dewey wanted to publicly take down a big-time gangster. Dutch Schultz was wild. He was highly public. Author Eric Desenhall. He was seen in, in night spots like the Cotton Club. He was, he was flashy in a repulsive way. And it made him an easy target. After the break... After the high-profile humiliation of Chicago mob boss Al Capone on tax evasion charges, Dewey went after Schultz's business records. Thomas Dewey goes after Schultz's tax affairs simply because it's an effective way of getting gangsters behind bars. To step back for a sec, in the late 1920s, the Supreme Court of the United States rules that you have to declare all income on your income taxes, even if it's gained from illicit sources. It doesn't matter if it's illegal income, you have to declare it. So this becomes a hugely potent weapon for the federal government to use against gangsters. In 1931, this tactic puts Al Capone behind bars for 11 years. Al Capone was never successfully prosecuted for murder, never successfully prosecuted for bootlegging. He is successfully prosecuted for not paying his taxes. So authorities thought, okay, we've got Al Capone, who's the biggest gangster in Chicago. Let's go after one of the biggest gangsters in New York City using the same tactics. So they uncover these ledgers. They find, you know, evidence that uh, Dutch Schultz has had a very high income. And they're very confident that they can nail him on the same charges. So that is why the tactic is used against him, as opposed to trying to charge uh, Schultz with, you know, murder or something more obvious. Schultz had been a scrupulous bookkeeper, designed to spot any pilfering by his gang. But now it lit up Dutch's criminal enterprise like Broadway. In January 1933, Dutch Schultz was indicted for tax evasion. He faced a massive 43 years in prison if found guilty. His back against the wall, Schultz used a tactic straight out of Arnold Rothstein's book, the mentor he'd come to hate the big bribe. Schultz for once acts rationally that he does send one of his minions to Washington to try to sort of sort things out and implicitly offer a bit of a bribe that he says, well, you know, if I owe $93,000 in income tax, why don't I just pay 100,000 and you know, well, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And this is turned down cold. 
And Schultz is genuinely surprised by this because, you know, in his experience, almost every politician he's encountered can be bribed. When the bribe didn't work, Schultz went on the run. And after nearly two years in hiding, the government declared Schultz public enemy number one. But now that he was the FBI's top priority, Schultz surprised everyone. So then he does another thing that is a bit out of character. After he goes into hiding for a while, he turns himself in. That he says, I think I'll have a better shot at trial than if I try to go into hiding. And if he goes into hiding, he runs the risk of number one, looking weak, and number two, other gangsters taking over his territory and his empire. So he throws all caution to the wind and voluntarily turns himself in to be charged which is quite an unusual step for any gangster to make, much less a gangster as sort of irrational uh, and erratic as Dutch Schultz. Everyone, even his own gang members, thought Dutch's days were numbered. Schultz is under enormous stress at this point and is feeling beleaguered on all sides. He's feeling beleaguered. He's feeling pressure from both legal authorities for his taxes and for Thomas Dewey, and he's feeling pressure from the underworld that he knows that his peers will happily take over his territory and his empire if given the chance. So he's feeling paranoid, but he has actually a reason to feel paranoid. Uh, but it's a case, you know, of the cliche that a cornered animal is often the most dangerous, that a lot of people think that he's on his way out, no big deal, but Schultz is very cunning, he wants to fight back, and he's not going to give in. So even though he surrenders himself to authorities, this is not a sign that he's giving up. And he's going to fight this to the bitter end, and he's happy to take on his own perceived internal enemies at the same time. After a persuasive argument by his lawyers, a few days later Dutch was out, but on a massive $75,000 bail. Determined to shore up his crumbling empire, he called a meeting with his close lieutenant, Jules Martin. Jules Martin was one of Schultz's associates, and by this point had been working with him closely for several years. Uh, Jules was primarily in charge of Schultz's restaurant rackets, which is basically where they would threaten restaurants to join a quote-unquote association, uh, and in exchange, they wouldn't have their place vandalized. So it was obvious, it was just a protection racket, is basically what it was. Jules Martin was in charge of this, and Schultz began to sense that Jules was ripping him off, was, uh, you know, taking money, embezzling money from the organization. He came up with a figure of $70,000. So Schultz arranges a meeting with Jules at a hotel, and they both drink quite a bit. And Schultz at first tries a little bit of diplomacy, which is a bit unusual for Schultz, and sort of, you know, hey, there's some you know accusations about you. Let's talk about this. And eventually he just gets fed up because Jules is denying everything. Oh, well, I would never, you know, rip you off. What are you talking about? But he does not react very well at all when his personal associates sort of turn on him. He takes this personally and he takes this revenge personally. So Schultz eventually just reaches over and slaps his, you know, old associate in the face. And this kind of jolts Jules and he finally admits, well, yes, I did embezzle some money. Uh, but he said it was only $20,000. It wasn't seventy. And keep in mind, these are much, at the time, much bigger figures. Even with the police and press watching his every step, Dutch couldn't keep a lid on his anger. So Schultz's reaction is uh, he needs the money at the time because he's going on trial for tax evasion. 
So according to his lawyer, Dixie Davis, who was in the room at the time, Schultz pulled out a gun, put it in Jewel's mouth and pulled the trigger. In his autobiography, Dixie Davis later wrote that uh, Dutch Schultz killed Jules as casually as if he was picking his teeth. Even for Schultz, this was reckless. Usually a top-ranking gangster would have one of their underlings, you know, take out Jules in a very sort of quiet, secretive way, you know, in a back alley or something, or somewhere where people might not be listening or might not be watching. So the fact Schultz reacts violently and reacts with personal violence is quite unusual. You know, Jules is killed on the spot and Schultz's minions evidently take care of the body. Uh, this, according to Dixie Davis, was a sign of Schultz's, uh, you know, degeneration, that he's, you know, killing somebody in front of a witness. He's doing this crime himself. He's losing control of his ability to, you know, rein in his, uh, his anger or, you know, have something done rationally. Instead of having one of his, you know, hitmen take out Jules in a nice quiet way, he runs the risk of arrest, you know, shooting him in a hotel. There could have been other witnesses. Uh, Schultz gets away with it, but this is a sign that, you know, he's slipping again. And again, people are only ripping him off because they think he's on his way out. But Nate Hindley believes it's also the personal betrayal that causes Schultz to lose control. Schultz reacts incredibly violently with Jules Martin for a couple reasons. Number one, obviously there's the money issue, that Schultz is notoriously tight with his money and is furious because he needs money right now, and here is one of his close associates embezzling. But he also reacts because he doesn't like personal rejection. And you could trace that all the way back to his father living when he was 14, but he does not react very well at all when his personal associates sort of turn on him. He takes this personally, and he takes this revenge personally. It is a danger to be a friend of Dutch Schultz and to double-cross him. That if you're friends with Schultz and you're obsequious to him and obey everything he says, you're probably fine. But if you show the slightest sign of disagreeing with Schultz, your life is probably in a lot of danger, even if you've been a close friend, even if you've been working with him for years. There's more to the story after the break. In July 1935, the trial of Dutch Schultz began. After Dutch's lawyers argue that their client would not receive a fair trial in New York, the judge agreed to move the legal proceedings to a small town near the Canadian border. Schultz is put on trial in Malone, New York, which is a small town, sort of in rural New York State, uh, for tax evasion. And he does something quite out of character for himself, that he shows up in town a week before the trial and puts on what I describe as a charm offensive. He throws money around, and this is really out of character for Dutch Schultz. Takes people out for dinner, he pays their tabs in bars, he goes out to baseball games with the mayor. He becomes friends with everybody, you know. Dutch Schultz learned enough from Luciano to do something very smart when he was on trial. Eric Desenhall. He went to upstate New York and he bought the town. He began to bribe people. Uh, he began to try to be charming and it actually worked. He ended up becoming quite popular uh, even though the word notorious is probably better. He became a part of the community, and he actually prospered uh, by doing that. When it goes to trial, he's smart enough to hire a local lawyer. And Schultz really tries to portray himself as a put-upon businessman who is being, you know, screwed over by the big government for his taxes. 
something that, you know, the people of Malone could relate to. You know, the little guy being sort of taken on by big bad government. And they weren't, you know, probably not all that concerned with bootlegging. Schultz was showing surprising cunning, far more in line with his gangland nemesis, Luciano. So this is Schultz at his most clever, you know, throwing money around, which is very out of character for him, and being charming. And it also shows if he wanted to be, Schultz could be a very charming, ingratiating guy. You know, good conversationalist, a lot of fun to be with, you know, life of the party kind of guy. Other times, not so much. The question was, would it work? Well, virtually everybody thinks Schultz is going to lose. And, you know, prosecutors are sort of confident, well, we finally got the guy. And Schultz's peers, uh, from Lucky Luciano and even to his own associates like Bo Weinberg, were, you know, suspecting the boss, you know, Schultz was going down. And so the gangsters in New York City were all already eyeing Schultz's quite impressive empire, especially his numbers racket, and were sort of, you know, hungrily sort of rubbing their hands saying, you know, I want this share and I want this share and I want this share. Incredibly, Schultz's bribes and uncharacteristic charm offensive paid off. The jury found him not guilty. The charm offensive was extremely successful, and the end result was was that Schultz uh, got off on his trial, that he was not found guilty, that uh, the system at the time required a consensus uh, uh, vote to find him guilty. They were not able to achieve that, so his case was tossed out. Schultz was genuinely surprised by his victory, and the small town judge was appalled and the judge of the case was just infuriated and actually gave a little speech in the courtroom saying, you know, basically implying that, you know, out of town people have come here and tried to impress the locals and this is terrible. Uh, and, you know, basically scolds the jury. Author Thomas Repetto. The judge uh, ruled later that those folks could never serve on another jury. He said, this, this decision is against the evidence. Dutch had beaten the government rap for tax evasion. But on his return to New York, Schultz discovered that other forces had also been conspiring against him. Schultz has won in Malone, but he quickly realizes that he's been betrayed by one of his closest associates, Bo Weinberg, who's been with him for years. With Schultz on the ropes, Weinberg had been plotting to betray him to his arch-rival, Lucky Luciano. Lucky Luciano, uh, he was in communication with a guy named Longy Zwillman and was sort of communicating with them and basically saying, I'll help you take over Dutch Schultz's criminal empire if you give me either a chunk of the proceeds or let me run part of the empire myself. So Bo was thinking very much that Schultz was either gonna to go to jail or get killed. And much to his, you know, big surprise, Schultz survived. To Schultz, it was the ultimate betrayal. And once again, he lost control. When Schultz suspects that Bo Weinberg has turned traitor, this is a perfect example of Schultz's impulsivity over sort of thinking ahead, thinking logically. At this moment, there's an enormous amount of press attention on Dutch Schultz. The police are breathing down his neck. Prosecutors are breathing down his neck. Thomas Dewey is watching him very closely. So what does Schultz do? He says, well, let's just kill Bo Weinberg. He liked to torture his victims and watch them while he died. Author of Five Families, Selwyn Rad. So he got this idea that he would encase Bo Weinberg's feet in concrete 
and dump him into the Harlem River. According to legend, he took him out on a boat, encased his feet in dry, quick drying cement, tossed him over the side. Whether or not that's true, Bo Weinberg disappeared off the face of the earth. It's widely assumed Schultz killed him. And this is a good example of how, number one, Schultz treats uh, even his close associates and close friends that he thinks have double-crossed him, and that he's willing to commit these incredible acts of violence, even with all this attention on him, that he's not thinking logically and thinking, well, maybe it's a bad idea to, you know, commit such a high-profile killing with all this attention. He just throws it to the wind and says, you know, screw it, I'm just going to kill this guy, he screwed me around, you know, he's dead. He didn't stop there. After the break. One by one, Schultz murdered his close friends in an attempt to remain in power. And other gangland bosses were becoming increasingly concerned by his behavior. Schultz is, at this point, getting even more erratic, more impulsive, and more bizarre. Uh, he's considering converting to Catholicism is another thing. He's suddenly become religious, that he's been a non-practicing Jew all his life, and he suddenly decides that I'm going to become Catholic, and he starts investigating that. His peers are getting very nervous because they think this is another sign of his centricity, and they're also a little worried that if he embraces Catholicism, will that mean that he starts confessing to things, you know? Well, uh, hey, police, I've got to tell you this story about some killings I did. So they're getting very nervous about Schultz already, even before he sets his sights on Thomas Dewey. So Schultz is starting to get, you know, even more bizarre than he's been uh, in years prior. Dutch was now on his own threatened not only by rival gangland bosses, but also prosecutor Thomas Dewey. Dewey had his finger pointing at Schultz, and Schultz found out about it, and that turned him into a paranoid, that he knew if Dewey was after him, he might get him. And uh, Dutch Schultz's answer to everything was bloodshed. Schultz wanted to take out Thomas Dewey. If successful, it would be the highest profile mob hit ever. But first, he'd need the approval of Lucky Luciano and his recently created commission. The commission is sort of, a, you know, imagine it as a board of directors for organized crime in America, but it's basically run by Lucky Luciano and some very close allies, sort of to, you know, make decisions and make approvals for assassinations. One of the unwritten rules the commission had was that if you were going to assassinate a very high-level person, be it a politician, a judge, you know, a lawyer, prosecutor, even a journalist, you would have to get their approval. This was not because they were very, you know, pacifists and didn't, you know, had hesitations about killing. Dutch Schultz meets with the commission and requests their approval to assassinate Thomas Dewey. But any kind of killing of that nature would bring a huge amount of pressure onto organized crime. If, for example, you murdered a policeman, all of that policeman's bodies could be assured to sort of jump on your, you know, rackets and jump on your organization. So there was a lot of hesitancy about murdering a prosecutor, even though this prosecutor was dead set on putting them all in jail. So when Schultz approaches them with this idea, they're all very nervous. And Luciano's reaction is basically, well, let's talk about it and we'll see if it's feasible. Then we'll come to a decision about whether we should actually do it or not. Luciano had no intention of allowing Schultz to kill Dewey. But he realized that his former stablemate was too hot-headed to brush off. 
So Luciano humored Schultz and commissioned the mob's top hitman, Albert Anastasia, to scope out a hit on Dewey. Albert Anastasia is one of the leading assassins in something called Murder Incorporated, which is kind of the enforcement arm of the commission. They're the ones who actually carry out the hits that are ordered by the commission. And Albert Al Anastasia is actually a very clever hitman, and he comes up with the idea that he's going to keep an eye on Thomas Dewey. And to do this, he sort of recruits some little child, probably one of the chill, uh, son of a gangster, puts him on a tricycle and has him sort of bike up and down the sidewalk in front of Thomas Dewey's house in New York City. So anybody looking on would assume that Albert was just sort of a you know doting father, spending some quality time with his son before work. Thomas Dewey certainly doesn't notice. So Albert sort of tracks his movements, figures out when he leaves the house, how many bodyguards he has, where he goes, uh, and without too much, you know, hassle from his bodyguards or anything. So Albert makes this report back to the commission saying it's entirely feasible to kill Thomas Dewey. It's up to you uh, to decide whether or not you want to actually have me do it. Dutch thought he'd got the go-ahead. Well, Schultz is initially delighted to hear this report from Albert Anastasia saying, well, here's a way we could actually kill Thomas Dewey. He's thinking, great, you know, we can get this guy off my back. But then, as Thomas Repetto explains, Luciano talked to the other bosses. And that Luciano said, if he kills Dewey, he'll bring the whole world down around our ears. The whole world will drop on us here. We can't let him do that. Schultz was desperate to knock Dewey out but the decision rested in the hands of his nemesis, Lucky Luciano. And the commission at this point is incredibly worried. They would love Thomas Dewey to die, but they don't want to have one of their own kill him for all the reasons I mentioned. It would bring a huge amount of negative publicity on the uh, organized crime and bring a lot of unwanted attention from police and authorities. Lucky delivered the commission's final verdict, a firm no. Schultz is appalled, and he feels again a sense of betrayal. Schultz just completely loses his temper, you know, basically loses his mind, and says, I don't care what the commission has to say, I don't care what Lucky Luciano has to say, I'm going to do this myself. So their reaction is more a shock and astonishment than anything else, because they're used to sort of sitting around and, you know, at least having a pretense of, you know, gentility and sort of discussing things. And all of a sudden, this guy's acting like the street corner thug that he's been all his life. You know, so this is, you know, quite unusual. And they're very surprised that anyone would disagree with one of their, you know, pronouncements. Because, you know, that essentially means this is Dutch Schultz has signed his death warrant. So the initial reaction of the commission is just shock and surprise. And then after Schultz departs, it quickly becomes, you know, fear and loathing that they realize that this guy's a totally loose cannon and they've got to do something about Schultz. And if that means actually protecting Thomas Dewey, then they're willing to do it. Eric Desenhall. When Dutch Schultz leaves the room, the commission knows they have a problem and they know what the solution is. And the solution is to kill Dutch Schultz. Having dared to question the authority of the commission, Schultz had signed his own death warrant. October 23rd, 1935. Schultz was at his favorite restaurant, the Palace Chop House in Newark, New Jersey. Well, the Chop House, the Palace Chop House, uh, was a location where Dutch Schultz sort of set up his headquarters because he couldn't return to Manhattan because the mayor was threatening us to arrest him if he set foot in the city. Dutch Schultz at this time still had pretty good 
uh, control of his rackets. Like, he was still making a fair amount of money, still running the numbers racket, so he turned this Palace Chop House restaurant into his sort of headquarters. He would meet with his henchmen. They would go over various things. They would have their meals. And this is sort of where they hung out. And this was sort of became known in gangster circles. A lot of more cautious gangsters will eat in a different restaurant every night, change their schedule. Schultz didn't. He just picked the same place and they would have often the same meal, steak and fries, and meet with the same people. So his enemies knew this and plotted an assassination. Dutch left his table to go to the bathroom. Moments later, hitmen Charlie the Bug Workman and Mendy Weiss walked in. Dutch Schultz is in the bathroom at the chop house when two assassins burst into the restaurant. Uh, Charlie the Bug Workman and uh, Mendy Weiss. And they come in with guns blazing. Thomas Repetto. The gunman came in and began firing some of the guys who were with him were shot six times. But the killers couldn't find the man they'd come for. The killers didn't know exactly where Dutch was. And they went into the bathroom and Dutch was there. And so they just blasted him. The two assassins made their escape as Dutch emerged from the bathroom. Schultz stumbles over to a table, sits down hard as if he was drunk, and then splays his face and arms on the table. He's still wearing his fedora and his overcoat. This photograph of this becomes a gangster classic. But Schultz wasn't dead. Schultz is still alive at this point, as are the three other associates who've also been shot. So as far as a gangland hit goes, this was actually a very sloppy one. Schultz was rushed to the hospital, clinging to life. He would soon learn just how few friends he had left in the mob. So Dutch Schultz is in the hospital and he receives a telegram. This is not a telegram from one of his friends wishing him well. This is a telegram from one of the people he pushed aside when he took over the Harlem numbers racket. The telegram comes from a female gangster named Stephanie St. Clair, nicknamed Queenie. And the telegram says, as you shall sow, so you shall reap. In other words, what you put out is what you get back. You've used violence to take over this racket, and this violence is now coming back to you. On October 24, 1935, Dutch Schultz dies. He is 34 years old. Schultz is a very unusual gangster, so it's not a surprise that his death is rather unusual. He also takes hours to die. He runs an incredibly high fever, and he starts babbling. Police install a stenographer next to him to take down his words, thinking he might reveal some gangster secrets. And all he does is babble incoherently about this, that, and the other. And it sort of exemplifies his life, that he's always been this oddball character, and he ends his life in this oddball monologue that just goes on and on and on about, you know, you know, mother, save me, blah, blah, blah. And this sort of bizarre sort of soliloquy that ends his life, uh, that he doesn't end it in some blaze of glory with a shootout with police or something, but he ends it lying on this bed, you know, babbling incoherently and making absolutely no sense at all, which is kind of how a lot of his peers viewed him while he was alive. Luciano and the commission met after Schultz's death to quietly divide up his empire. The immediate beneficiary of Schultz's death is Lucky Luciano because he's the unofficial head of the organized crime in the United States. His peers, they sort of carve up Schultz's empire and Lucky Luciano helps himself to a nice big portion. 
Dutch had lost everything because he didn't see how the mob was changing. Dutch Schultz was hated not only because he had no sense of style, he was hated because he was unpredictable. And the thing that these guys did not want at that time in history was somebody who would end up killing them. You wanted to believe you were in business with a partner, not somebody who would wake up on the wrong side of the bed and the next thing you know, put a bullet in you. Dutch Schultz was too much of a loner, too public, too dangerous. In the end, he was simply bad for business. Dutch was wild and defiant and killed, you know, without even thinking. Dutch Schultz's fatal flaw is that he never grew up, he never matured. That unlike his peers, and especially unlike Lucky Luciano, he never grew into the sort of slightly more mature, far-seeking kind of gangster who realizes, you know, that there's certain unwritten rules, I can't be personally violent, I've got to sort of fall back into the shadows a bit, that Schultz really is the same personality when he dies as he was when he was 18, 19. Dutch Schultz was the last mob boss to think that he alone could stand up to the might of Lucky Luciano and the American Mafia. And he paid the ultimate price. This has been an Audio Boom original. Thanks to Hymns, ZipRecruiter, and Dollar Shave Club for sponsoring this episode. Follow Mafia on Spotify, or rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your favorite shows. <laughs>